Hello and welcome to Recap, Per Capita's research and policy podcast where we examine inequality and unpack our latest work in our fight for a fairer Australia. We're coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation, whose lands were never ceded and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. I'm your host, Matt Lloyd-Cape, Director of the Centre for Equitable Housing here at Per Capita. And this week I'm joined by Lisa Tonkin, who is our Andrew Harrington Research Fellow. Hello. And Sam Ibrahim, our research economist here at Per Capita. Hi, Matt. Hi. So we're here today to talk about one of the Centre for Equitable Housing's uh, most recent reports, which is called Regulating Rentals in Australia, What Works, which was released a little while ago now, um, but covers a lot of research and policy in the rental um, crisis. Sure. So, Matt, um, I'm not in the Centre for Equitable Housing here at Per Capita, so for the layman, um, renting seems to be growing as a policy issue in the national debate. Um, how many people does it actually affect? Yeah, so the, the proportion of Australians that rent is, is growing, and it's growing pretty fast. So between 2000 and 2020, the proportion of people that are in the private rental market increased from less than 20% to more than 26% of the population. So that's around an extra million and a half people entering the private rental market. At the same time, we've had a decline in the number of people renting in the social rental market, so public housing and community housing. Um, but the real big shift has been the drop-off in the number of people, particularly young people, exiting the rental market to buy a house. Um, so what that is, what's happening, I think, is that we're seeing a lot of people spending longer periods in the private rental market when they used to exit into home ownership. It's been a huge drop off in the proportion of people aged 20 to 40 who own their home. Um, so this means that people starting families and older people, they're spending more and more time in the rental market. And really our rental market structure and our rental laws and regulations aren't really designed for that. My next question then is like, when did this specifically become an issue? Um, when did we see it become an issue? Yeah, well, I, so one thing to start off with is that we've seen a crisis for low-income renters um, for at least 15, 20 years now. Um, and that really is linked back to the decline in the building and provision of social housing by the, by the federal and state governments. So for low-income renters, there's been a growing share of them um, having to spend more than 30% of their income on rents. Um, so we're up to around 30 or 40% of people in the uh, private rental market who are low-income households who are spent who are in rental stress. So that's one area of the market. For the um, like, if you look at the median numbers, the actual share of income being spent on rent hasn't grown that much at the median level for like 20 years, um, and that means um, it kind of disguises a lot of variation within the market. But what it means is that you know we we've actually seen like falling rents for a long period during that past twenty years, but I think for a lot of people they just haven't noticed it or felt it because wages haven't been going up, um, and that's been a real problem, particularly for young people and low-income households. Um, but as we'll talk about later on, one of the big problems for people wherever they are in the rental market is that there's just a lot of volatility and not much protection. So you can you know maybe in a position where you can afford your rent. You've been with the same landlord for a few years. Um, you're a good tenant, but if the rent, if the landlord wants to get rid of you or put your rent up by a particular amount, there's not that many protections in many parts of Australia to stop them doing that. Okay. So Sam, like you, you know this better than anyone, right? So you experienced this last year um, when you received a letter from your landlord. 
Yeah, so um, I was living in the same property in like Melbourne's inner city um, for about two, almost three years, um, paying um, a pretty reasonable market um, rate um, until I got a rental increase, which I was expecting um, just because a lot of people were getting them that I knew. So I wasn't particularly surprised to get the email. But what I was surprised by was the amount. Mm -hmm. So the amount was an 80% increase. So I was originally paying, I think it was 1500 bucks a month. And it went up to just under $2,800 a month. Wow. And it was accompanied with an email, with a, sorry, a phone call that I can only describe as like an offer I couldn't refuse, like a sort of almost Godfather-esque huh. thing where he was very sort of kindly trying to be like, um, trying to convince me that actually it was an immense kindness that he wasn't simply doubling my rent, huh. um, that it was an 80% increase instead of a 100% increase and that I should somehow be grateful for that. Um, obviously that in effect is an eviction, um, which there are no, as I'm as far as I'm aware, you'd know better, um, Matt, um, protections against here in Victoria. Mm. There are protections against um, no-fault evictions straight up, but you can just increase rent to the point that it's untenable for the tenant. Well, yeah, I mean, in Victoria, but a show, um, you ca you could challenge that, um, yeah. and the, the landlord should be showing you some sort yeah. of documentation to say, this is why that's a fair market rent increase. Yeah. Um, but as we know, the power relationships between landlords and yeah. tenants is such that, yeah. you know, it's very hard for people to, do, to challenge these matters they might not have the resources to go to um, vcat to challenge mm. this or um or they may just not know their rights you know it's much mm. more common for the landlords to know the law inside out and for tenants not to know it so well i mean for me and i'm not sure if this is a common thing but in my particular case it was pretty easy to find that on realestate.com the three examples that they gave which they do have to give mm. of similar rates um were in the same building they were very similar apartments so they were very good um comparisons but they were all managed by the same property manager, huh. which to me, I'm not accusing anybody of anything, but that just seems dodgy. Yeah, yeah. And that goes back to this um, idea that, you know, uh, we essentially have, um, you know, every property is essentially a monopoly on that particular bit of space. Um, mm -hmm. And that's something that has a lot of effects in yeah. many parts of the housing market. But yeah, yeah. clearly if it's uh, three examples from the same property manager, then that's not, I wouldn't have thought that that would stand up in VCAT. But yeah, even well, you I for yourself. To be cat, so I mean, yeah. I just kind of thought it, this is just a good time to go. Cause yeah. I, even if I did fight it and I was successful, I think that I would maybe get it down to a fifty percent increase or something like that. I just couldn't afford to live there anymore. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. There's a few of the issues that we um, discuss in the report. Um, in that little story, um, maybe we can. I'll let you guys ask the questions since I wrote the report. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, so a solution that a lot of people do raise to these sort of um, exorbitant rent increases is the concept of a rent freeze. For those who do keep championing it, what can we say would be the effect of a rent freeze on actual rental experience for tenants? Yeah, I think this is a huge topic and it's one of those, there's lots of areas in housing where you think it's so obvious um, we should just do it because that we, it would just immediately have an effect. So the idea of a rent freeze is that um, the government would say rent prices have to stay at this rate or can only increase by X percent. Um, well, a rent freeze would be saying no increases over this 
period. I think the Greens suggested a two-year period. Um, it may stop rents going up, but it would also have a lot of other unintended consequences. So Sam, you, you and Lucy and I all worked on, that, on an Airbnb paper, and we know, for example, that the profitability um, from Airbnbs is very high compared to the long-term rental market, or can be. Yes. So one immediate effect would be that a bunch of landlords would say, okay, I'm not gonna be able to raise the rent. Um, let me look around at my options. Is Airbnb my place out an option? So you might start losing long-term rentals, leaking them out into those other short-term markets. Another effect that's been documented in a, in a lot of countries is that um, landlords just stop doing any maintenance work on their properties. Um, so the idea is that, you know, we already have pretty loose and not very well implemented uh, rental quality standards in Australia, and so a rent freeze might make that worse. So you'd have more, more mould, um, less insulation going in, less upkeep. Um, so that's a really key problem that rent freezes um, have been shown to have an effect on. Um, and the, the, whether or not this is true, I'm not so sure it applies to Australia in the same sort of way as other countries, but the other area is that um, people stop investing in the rental market. So they think, mm, you know, I can't be sure that I can just get the market rate for rents anymore, so I'm going to um, invest somewhere else. Now, I'm not sure that really applies to Australia so well, because in Australia, a lot of landlords are after, they're chasing the capital gain on the value of the property rather than the rental income, but still, there's a lot of issues with rent freezes, but um, these could be mitigated by rent stabilisation instead. So that's what um, what we proposed in our regulating rentals report earlier this year, was a rent stabilisation approach. So what would this approach entail, entail, and are there any other examples of other countries or states or territories here in Australia that are using these sort of measures? Yeah, and I think this is um, really key, which is that many, many countries already do this. We can learn from what they do, um, apply some of their policy lessons to, to us, and we actually have rent stabilisation in Australia in the ACT. So rent stabilisation, instead of saying no one can lift rents, uh, rent rates whatsoever, it says um, you can raise your rents every year or every period by a defined amount. Um, so in the ACT they use um, the rental component of the CPI to say that um, rents can be lifted by 110% of whatever rents are going up by. If you want to raise it by more than that, you have to say why. So if you've put in a new kitchen, or if you've um, you know, renovated the property recently, and there's a reason why you should be able to rent it out at a higher rate, um, then, then you can apply. So in that instance, what you tend to see is that instead of like capping the market, you're just smoothing transition of the market from one price platform to another. Because rents are often, they go up in cycles. You know, they're not always going up steadily over the years. They'll stay stagnant or flat for a long period, and then they'll spike really dramatically. And that's what we've seen in the last year, or the last two years. And that's what's caused the distress, is that we've got no mechanism to stop those huge spikes. So rent stabilization is to say, okay, we understand that, you know, overall the rental market, like the market mechanism is a good thing, um, but we need to smooth that out. And we actually already do that for um, landlords, you know, so when they have an increase in their land tax, so their property gets revalued, um, we will give them a run, like a runway period in which the increase to their tax will be tapered in slowly so they're not suddenly stunned by a massive increase. So we, you know, we're already using that, that kind of a mechanism in the rental market, but only on the landlord side. 
Now, when it comes to other countries, um, Ireland's got uh, good st rent stabilisation policies, a little complicated, but um, seems to be having a good effect in maintaining uh, lower rent growth. Um, Germany, uh, many of the Scandinavian countries, uh, many cities in the US, they all use some form of rent stabilisation. And it's really a contested space. There's a lot of political, emotional attachment to one side of the argument or another. But from our research, we felt that it seemed clear that the other Australian states and territories would really benefit from stabilisation policies. Interesting. Um, as, as far as I'm aware, um, Australia builds more homes per capita than most comparable developed countries. So I guess my question is why can't, why is it difficult for people to find adequate housing generally in this country? Mm, yeah, so supply is the big, it's one of the big uh, questions of the moment and there's a lot of people out there saying that we just need to liberalise uh, building uh, or planning regulations to allow builders to just go out there and start building and bring the price down. We build a lot in this country already, and there has to be a certain capacity at which, you know, we have a limited amount of resources, financial, labor, government, and otherwise. Um, and so we, sp we have about 5% of our workforce in construction. Um, it's, it's a lot higher than most of the OECD countries. The reason is, is because partly is because we have a very fast um, population growth. Um, and so we're building to keep up with that population growth through migration. Now, migration brings a whole host of benefits to the country, so we don't, we don't want to slow that down. There's definitely ways we can improve migration, focusing more on permanent migration than temporary, um, and that would have an effect on whether people are looking for um, a house to buy versus a house to rent. So this idea that um, we can just liberalise supply um, doesn't seem to necessarily hold out in the evidence and I think Lucy's done some work on this as it's really relevant to this topic. Yes I have and there's definitely a feeling that developers can only build at a certain rate and they only want to build at a certain rate as well. A private developer at the end of the day is going to be working with those forces of supply and demand and they're not going to flood their market with new housing if there's not a profit motive to do so. So I think we really need to be thinking about what are some other ways that we can get that housing built and get the right people into housing that works for them. And as far as I can tell, I don't think that that would ever be possible just relying solely on a profit motivated company to do that. So what happens, like you've done, you've looked at the research on master plan communities where, they, where the government says, okay, we're gonna rezone this huge plot of land, we'll work with the developers to build a whole new city or a whole new suburb. And what happens to supply there? it does get withheld. So there's some great work by Prosper Australia, who's another think tank here in Melbourne, and they found that the master plan communities work to very long horizons, sometimes up to 40 years, and when prices look like they're going to drop, the supply of land is withheld. So there's less release of land for people to buy and build a house on, those house and land packages, and it means that the prices stay pretty stable over time, even if there could be lower prices for that land that's being sold, they're not being sold at that price because there's just fewer packages being sold. Yeah. So I think that's really evidence that simply just saying we need to build more housing is unfortunately a very simplistic sort of um, tagline that doesn't really take into account the way that the market actually works. Yeah, this idea that um, builders want house prices to go down. You know, you have a lot of property lobbies at the moment saying we want to um, have planning regulations reduced so that we can build more rentals and that you know w look at the motives for 
why they exist in the first place. They are profit-making entities, and if they own a parcel of land, if they're land banking, um, they will trickle that, that supply out into the market over a number of years. If the market goes cold, they'll withhold. If the market gets hot, they'll start pumping out a few more. But it's not as simple as saying, um, increase supply and we'll fix this problem. And I think particularly for low-income renters, that's just not the case, because we've seen the proportion of low-income households in rental stress climb year on year as we've stopped building social housing. Um, and that's a really direct and obvious way in which we can improve the rental crisis for those most affected, and that's people at the bottom of the income scale. So right now, the estimates are that we have something like, nationally, something like 460,000, uh, a shortfall of 460,000 social housing dwellings. Like if you look at people's incomes and say, well, based on your income, you, should, you would qualify for social housing. That's 400, that's nearly half a million homes, so a couple of million people um, who should be in social housing um, and not in the private rental market. So we're kind of squeezing the population from the rental population from both sides, right? You've got people who should be in social housing but can't find it because the governments aren't building it, being pushed from the bottom into the private rental market, and we're taking away people's exit from private rental uh, into home ownership, and we're just pushing and pushing more and more people into that private market, um, and we just don't have the regulations or laws to give them protections that they need. So what's the alternative, apart from social housing, are there any other models of private renting that we could explore? Um, yeah, well we spent a bit of time in this report looking at the structure of the, um, of the landlord sector and looking at who owns, why they own, um, how long they own houses for, and really what it comes down to is that we've set up our rental market in such a way that most of the supply or maybe not most of the supply, but most of most landlords um, are hobby landlords. So they're not professionals, they're just doing it because they've got their self-managed super fund or they've got a bit of extra cash that they can release from, like equity from their owner-occupied house. And they can buy uh, an investment property and rent it out. And most people in that cohort, they're looking really to chase the cap capital gains. They're not really looking at the rental yield as a, um, as the, the core reason to be a landlord, and that's quite different from other places in the world. So what we've got with negative gearing and, and CGT discounting is incentives for people that aren't particularly wanting to be landlords, they're wanting to be property investors, coming into the market. Um, because uh, capital gains tax discount can be realized after just one year, there's an incentive for people to flip houses, right? So if you see your um, the value of your house go up really rapidly in a year, you just sell it and flip it and, um, and take that CGT discount, which is a, it's a huge chunk, it's a 10% discount. Um, so, a 10% discount on what you pay in tax. So, um, that, that kind of structure means that we've got landlords who are really keen to flip houses, um, landlords entering and exiting um, the private rental market really rapidly. Um, so we've got very little stability in the private rental market. And that means people that have very short tenancies, they might not have a landlord that's particularly interested in being a landlord or that's particularly good at it. You know, we've got no regulations around, um, you know, we've got, when it comes to other essential services like food or electricity or whatever else, if you want to be a provider of that or childcare, if you want to be a provider of that service, you need to be regulated, have cert certificates of practice, all these kind of things. But when it comes to being a landlord, we've got none of that, not even a register of landlords.
So we've got this kind of very permissive environment in which people can chase short-term capital gain um, without any kind of downside to them. Um, and we've got very few laws protecting our renters. So one thing would be to shift, uh, well, there's two things really coming out of that. One is that we need to look at updating our rental regulations. Um, you know, if you look at somewhere like Ireland, <clears throat> they've gone from having uh, fairly similar um, contract lengths, rental, private rental contract lengths as us. Um, uh, and over a number of years, they've shifted now to um, six year minimum contracts in the private rental market and then up to indefinite contracts. So there, there are examples of countries changing along these lines. <coughs> so that's one side of it. It's really looking at the laws and the regulations around renting, making sure people can treat a house, a rented house as their home. So whether it's pets, whether it's having a guarantee to live in a certain spot for a number of years, um, whether it's um, your ability to challenge a rental price increase, all of those laws and regulations need to be updated and modernized in Australia quite uh, urgently. Um, we have seen a lot of reforms um, in uh, Victoria, we've seen some reforms in New South Wales and Queensland, but really um, we should be looking to uh, catch up with our peer nations in this regard. The other side of that whole issue is how do we get the kind of landlords that we want? So we want people that are in it for the long haul, who can provide professional service, um, and one part of that is probably to incentivize non-individuals, so maybe uh, institutional investors like superannuation funds to be building um, built-to-rent uh, built uh, properties. We can look at places like the UK where the, uh, the not-for-profit landlord sector has grown enormously and now they're like 30% of the market over in the UK. Um, here it's maybe 2 or 3%, it's tiny, so maybe not even that, 1%. So we can look at ways of having landlords that are incentivized differently in the market. So I guess that lack of register um, and accountability has led to things like um, sort of citizen initiatives like the landlord blacklist, as I'm sure you're aware. Yeah. Um, I guess, how do you feel about that, first of all? And is that something that a more formalized version would be helpful? Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Like, I, I think it's... It's entirely understandable that people are angry, mm -hmm. and um, probably you know probably most landlords are, are have a decent sort of moral compass in, in the way they operate and the way they interact. But often people don't even have that engagement with their tenants because they go through another poorly regulated part of this whole picture, which is um, you know your your um, building managers and your and your property management. Companies, so that that whole sector could have a good good re-regulation as well, um, but I think the danger is is that we've set it up so that you'd essentially be a fool in Australia not to if you had a bit of capital you'd be a fool not to invest it in property right now because or maybe not right now but over in general because you get such favourable tax treatment because prices rise seven percent a year pretty much you know on average every year in year out. Um, you know, we, we structure it so that people are channeling this money into buying existing houses. And one thing that really popped out to me recently was that the proportion of housing investment going into new construction has more than halved in 20 years as these new tax relief systems have come into place, right? So people aren't even channeling money into the new builds in the way that they used to. They're channeling all their money into buying a house, 
flipping it or holding it for a period. Um, so it's not their fault that they're being told, they're being effectively guided into these decisions by the government. So I think we have to be a little careful when we set up an us and them kind of mentality in this situation. Because these are structural problems, you will always have um, individual landlords who are like terrible examples, um, and we should be rightly you know, outraged by that. But if we've made a structural problem as a society through policy, we've got to look for policy solutions. I think the blacklist that I was mentioning speak to the the emotional aspect of this issue, which makes sense, you know, for, of all the things that we need, food, water, shelter is one of them. Yeah. Um, and shelter is the only one that seems to be a part of the national debate at the moment. Um, can you speak to a little bit about the divide that happens between those who own and those who rent, um, particularly a little bit on the emotional level, but also just on the um, class divide that kind of happens when there's the asset class and the sort of renter class? Mm. <laughs> yeah, big topic. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in a different episode. You know, it's, a, it's a full episode in itself. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, we, we are currently producing a housing podcast series and we're going to talk about this a lot more but um as we've incentivized people into buying property you know people with a bit of wealth and that usually means older male white you know it's it's the those that already have the most in society are most able to benefit right which your housing survey and now housing monitor have confirmed basically absolutely yeah yeah um and people, if they want to go to housingmonitor.org.au, can play with the data themselves. It's really fun. Um, or maybe a bit depressing, but <laughs> hopefully a bit fun as well. Um, the, yeah, the issue is that we, so we're driving more and more um, individual investors into, uh, into the housing market for reasons that aren't necessarily aligned with providing good rental accommodation. Um, and that means, because of that favorable tax treatment, they can you can often sort of leverage off each property that you own as you pay it off. So it's kind of easy, it's easier once you already own a property to buy a second in many ways than for a, for a first time buyer because you can negatively gear your losses and your, you can negatively gear your um, interest payments on your mortgage. Whereas a first time buyer, they can't do that. So what we're setting up really is a way in which we're funneling more and more cash into the housing market that's making house prices go up. That is lifting prices out of reach of, as we said earlier, workers that haven't had a, much of a pay increase for, for a decade, those at the sort of lower and median levels. Um, and that does have the effect of, over time, creating a class divide between property owners and non-property owners. So one of the things that we looked at in our survey was the proportion of people who were going to rely on having um, some sort of, um, some sort of like financial support from their parents or an inheritance um, to buy a house, and I think the majority of people said that they were going to rely on an inheritance to be able to buy a home, um, so that's rented. But we also saw, um, it was really interesting to see and kind of horrifying that the proportion of men that were receiving financial support to buy a house, it was about a third of men overall that said they received um, some money to buy a house. It's much more for people buying now, but over the, the whole sample, about a third. But for women, it's only 25% receiving financial help from their, um, from their family. So um, we, we don't know the cause of that. We've sort of got theories around that, which is that you know, in, in, our, in our cultural traditions, the parents of the bride pay for the wedding. 
And so parents might go, okay, I'm going to give 30 grand to my son, 30 grand to my daughter, and the daughter ends up spending that on a consumption item, which is a wedding, you know, it's gone in a day, whereas the son gets to put it into a house deposit. So we've got all these kind of effects building in, and that's if you're lucky enough to have parents who already um, own a house. If you're a new migrant, um, if you're from a poor family, if you're a First Nations Australian, your chances of having a parent that owns a house in the first place are much lower. Um, and so we're, we're going from this position where Australian was seen as this country where a migrant could rock up with not like, you know, two cents in their pocket and, you know, get a, a decent blue collar job um, and then be able to buy a house and own a little square of Australia. Um, you know, it's not always true, that, that story, but that, there was a good dollop of truth to that whole narrative. Absolutely. Um, you know, we, we, I think you said your parents had a, a sort of experience like that when they came here. Yeah, um, it was, my parents both talk about it very fondly arriving here um, and to a country where they were welcomed um, and there was free education at the time. My dad got a master's degree for free and um, was able to buy property within about five years of arriving here with a below average paying um, full-time job Yeah, and even start his own business um, a little bit later, um, a small business. So yeah. And I, I, they're also incredibly aware of the fact that for their children, that is no longer mm. the case. Yeah. Um, and because of that, my dad talks about this social contract that used to exist that doesn't seem to anymore. Yeah. Where, but back then there was a bit of a blueprint that existed that if you just did these simple things, get an education, um, buy a house, everything will kind of sort itself out. Mm. Um, you will be able to retire, you will be able to raise your children to a good standard. Um, you won't necessarily be um, without work for years at a time, things like that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, things are certainly better in a lot of ways um, now, but, and I don't have the comparison point, so I maybe don't think of it this way, but my parents certainly do every once in a while. Um, tell my brothers and I that that they lament that things aren't the way they used to be in that particular sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing, right? We're, we're sort of getting to the position where we are, you know, creating a sort of class divide. Like I'm from the UK and the first house I ever bought um, was a leasehold house, right? So this is where we have this incredibly archaic system in the UK where you'd have, you know, maybe Prince Charles or uh, some aristocrat that actually owned the land underneath your house and you would periodically buy the rights to live in a house upon that land, right? And th so that's an ancient system of feudal bullshit that <laughs> should not be copied. And clearly what we're seeing here in Australia is that we're moving more, more and more towards this position where your inheritance, your, your birthright is, uh, is going to determine your um, position in society and in life. Um, so, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm sort of in my early 40s and I so you look down, not down, you look at people in the younger generations and think, you know, the cost of education, the fact that education doesn't actually lead to a job that will necessarily pay for a mortgage and the fact that you can't even begin to think about affording it anyway because prices are so high. You know, we are breaking that social contract and we really need to look at this very broad systemic uh, problem and really grapple with it in a very broad way and that's what we're trying to do at, at the centre um, because just to say 
well, let's get the NIMBYs out or let's get um, planning regulations changed doesn't grapple with these big, big structural changes that we've um, introduced into our, into our society. Mm. And, you know, Thomas Piketty talks about, you know, as you break down that social contract, you decrease social cohesion. And I think you can see that in the creation of different camps like the NIMBY campaigns and the YIMBY campaigns um, and the homeowners and renters. It's the, in the national debate, it's sort of become there's, there's a fence, and that fence is home ownership, and people are either on one side or the other. Mm. Um, and we've seen that with the the way the Greens are operating in Parliament this this term. Um, you know, they, they're setting themselves up as the party of renters. Um, I can understand the, the political incentive for them to do so, but I think there's also a danger in, um, if we persist with, like, I, I believe in class politics, um, but I also think there's a danger in not looking for um, the structural causes to these class creating um, issues um, and that's you know as policy people that's where we have to look we have to look at um, where are the policy solutions that mitigate and change these structures mm -hmm. and then address the political causes that, that um, introduce them so when it came to the rent freeze I think the Greens knew at a certain point that it was not um, it's not something that the Commonwealth government could even implement even if they wanted to because it of the constitutional divide of powers over rental uh, regulation so there was there's a lot of potential for this to become a political gain gamesmanship um kind of a, a topic and that's really dangerous because what we need is as we saw post world war ii was a, a lot of kind of agreement between the parties that the government was uh, incredibly uh, important in directing the housing market controlling the supply of low-income housing you know, we had 30 years or so of, you know, there was differences in policy platforms, but there was the, an agreement that federal government had a huge role to play in the provision of low-income housing. Yeah. There was agreement um, in that government had a huge role to play, but I think it's important to say that even then there was opposition to the idea that the average worker should be a homeowner. Mm. Um, in the famous speech where Menzies talks about little creating little capitalists... Um, in through homeownership. Through homeownership. Yeah. Um, what's often forgotten is that Labour Minister John Dedman said um, too much of their legislative program was deliberately designed to place workers um, in a position in which they would have a vested interest in the continuance of capitalism. This is a policy which will not have my support at any rate. Mm. So these are not new ideas that we're saying. No, here, absolutely not. Putting forward here right now. But at least both governments were building. And yeah. uh, one thing on that whole little capitalist thing, I was thinking about this recently. You know, what, we're not creating little capitalists, we're creating petty landlords who are seeking to extract a rent. So capitalists, in theory, you know, capitalists are there to create profit by being able to sell a product for a higher value than the inputs. But when we're talking about housing, you know, the term economic rents, which means an unearned income, um, is, this is the thing that the early capitalist um, boosters, like Adam Smith, were really fighting against. They thought, you know, Adam Smith's got this great story of how the, the salmon farmers on the um, Scottish Isles should have been the richest people in the world because the products that they produced had incredible market value. But they had to ship their catch from their islands to the big ports like Glasgow, Edinburgh. Um, and when they got there, they had to dock. And when they docked, there was a landlord that owned those docks and could charge them whatever they wanted 
to unload their, their catch, their fish, in, and sell it at the market. So, you know, we, we know that from the early days of economics, from Adam Smith onwards, that people um, extract wealth without any effort or producing any value, and the, the modern term for this is passive income, which I hate so much. Um, they're not capitalists, they're rentiers. You know, they're, this is pre-capitalism that we're going back to. So we're not producing little capitalists at all. It's something much worse. Mm. And it's important to say that when Menzies was talking about little capitalists, he was talking about home ownership, not investment properties and things yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. But even so, you know, they're not, what's the, what's the capitalist in, in, what he means is someone that's compliant to. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So we've talked about a lot of policy solutions. We've talked about regulating landlords and regulating the incentives that drive people to invest in residential rental properties. We're also talked about regulating short-term rentals, building more social housing, reforming renters' rights and the amount of rent that renters are paying for their property. We've also talked about the concept of institutional investment in rental property rather than what people are often calling these hobby or mum and, and dad landlords. But is there anything else that we need to think about when we're regulating rentals in Australia? Yeah, I think one thing that we keep coming back to in our work is the need to have a coordinated national approach. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I said it before, I'll say it again, you know, when you're talking about this many changes across this many policy domains, you really need to have coordination and a plan and a mission and some objectives as to where you want to get to. Um, if we just tweak little bits here and there, like we were saying earlier on, like if you introduce a rent freeze, you'll have a spill out into short-term investing, uh, short-term um, rentals like Airbnb. You know, there's lots of ways where you squeeze one end of the sausage and then the meat squirts out the other end, right? So we've got to look at having a real good structure to this. Now, and right now the government is, uh, they're in the process of drawing up their 10-year housing plan. Um, it's the National Housing and Homelessness Plan. And the, like, the purpose of these kind of statements and documents is to set the tone um, for how important housing is. Uh, we need to set some objectives and we need to define what we're actually talking about. Because housing, like we talked about, it's everything from tax incentives, the mortgage market, through to you know whether you can have a pet in your home and um, whether your toilet flushes and things like that. So there's a lot of different policy areas to talk about. So our position is that we really need to see a much more ambitious national housing strategy. Um, at the moment, the National Housing and Homelessness Plan is um, it's fairly constrained to talking mostly about social housing and homelessness. But what we've tried to show in all of our work is that you, you don't get more homelessness or less homelessness by only looking at homelessness policies. It's a product of other areas of the housing market, like the affordability of low-income rental accommodation supply of social housing. So really what we want to see is a much more coordinated and ambitious approach from the federal government that sets really, you know, let's make this a national mission. Um, Maybe it's not as sexy as flying to the moon, um, but making sure that every Australian is housed in an appropriate, affordable, sustainable um, uh, and well-located home. What, what, What kind of a mission would that be for us as a nation? It'd be fantastic. And it would have spillovers as well. You know, we're talking about If you make housing um, sustainable, we've got climate impacts. We're talking about double glazing standards. We're talking about um, that the knock-on effect for that would be more factories building double glazing, more manufacturing jobs. Um, There's many, many areas in which we need to see much more joined up thinking. Um, So we're really hoping that the government will, uh, federal government will rethink their approach to the National Housing and Homelessness Plan 
and set a much more ambitious approach. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Um, it's been really great to talk today and we should be publishing our submission to the National Housing Homelessness Plan Issues paper very soon. Yeah, I think it's we'll up now. we'll be talking more about that. Yeah, it's up now and um, we will uh, be writing a report on that fairly soon as well. If we get the time. If we get the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, uh, thanks, Sam. Thanks, Lucy. Really good thank chat. Thank you. Well, that's all the time we have today. We'd like to thank our listeners for joining us. Um, and if you'd like to learn more about this report, head over to percapita.org.au. Lucy has an article out now in Parity magazine um, looking at the linkages between housing, homelessness and poverty. So if you want to look more into that area, have a look at Parity magazine. Um, otherwise, join us next time where we'll continue to examine inequality and work towards a fairer Australia.